Hello, everyone. I am Ramanan Raghavendran. Uh, since this is an India-oriented audience, I'm going to make this introduction a bit more personal. So I came to Penn as an undergraduate 35 years ago from high school in New Delhi, and now play a number of volunteer roles for the university, including serving as a university trustee. My oldest Penn engagement is with Penn's Center for Advanced Study of India, where I have served on the advisory board for 14 years now. I also serve as board chair for Cassie's sister institute in India, UPSI, which we will talk about briefly before we are done. I have the honor today to be the interlocutor for Dr. Tarek Tachil. Tarek is the new director of Cassie uh, as of July 1st, and um, he plays a number of roles now uh, at Penn, and one of them is that he holds the Madanlal Sopti chair for the study of contemporary India in Penn's Department of Political Science. So I'm going to ask Tariq, if that's okay, Tariq, to spend a few minutes uh, touching on Cassie briefly and then talking about your main vector of research. After that, I'll come back and ask you a few questions, but the chat box is open for anyone from the audience uh, to put questions in, and I will pick from them and ask Tariq, uh, and he's, he may dip into the chat box as well. So Tariq, over to you. Okay, thanks very much, Ramanan, for that kind introduction, and thank you, everyone, for joining today. Um, I'm just going to share some of the slides that I'm going to be speaking from. Um, and so I'm delighted to be able to talk to you about uh, this timely topic of migrant workers in India, uh, and I'm also uh, very delighted to be able to address you in my new role as uh, the director for the Center for Advanced Study of India. Um, as Ramanan mentioned, this also goes by the name of Cassie here at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and just before diving into today's talk, um, I thought I would just quickly outline what Cassie is for those who may not be familiar, may want to engage with our center's activities. Um, so Cassie was a somewhat unique center founded in 1992 as in some ways the first center of its kind to focus squarely on research uh, on contemporary India within a major US university. And over the past nearly three decades, Cassie has conducted research on topics ranging from agricultural markets to Indian elections, um, to uh, the special focus on urbanization that we're going to do on the upcoming year, very pertinent to today's discussion. We also host a number of conversations among a diverse array of participants, including many visiting scholars, policymakers, and journalists from India. Um, and going forward, we're especially excited to broaden inclusion of participants coming from underrepresented communities, both within India, uh, but also within the US and the US Academy. Um, Cassie also engages uh, students here at Penn, building on its highly successful summer internship program in India. And we're looking to expand student-facing events during the academic year. And I think a key role we're looking to do here is to expand undergraduate awareness of current events and political debates within India. Um, and all of these offerings, we're hoping to kind of broaden access to uh, beyond our physical campus community, um, here in Philadelphia uh, by making many of them available digitally. So if you go to our website, and uh, I'll share the link at the end of the talk, uh, we post webinars that are recorded. Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter, India in Transition, um, and you can also subscribe um, and listen to our podcast, uh, which we're hoping to relaunch um, in the near future. So let me turn to uh, just providing some brief thoughts for the discussion that we're going to have today. This won't be a long presentation. I'll just give some brief uh, food for thought on this topic of India's quote-unquote migrant crisis. And of course, all of us are kind of aware of this crisis um, that came in the wake of the novel coronavirus pandemic. 
um, India's mitigation strategy, as many of you have personally experienced, centered on, uh, by global standards, an extremely stringent national lockdown. And the abrupt nature of this lockdown order triggered an exodus of millions of migrant workers who looked to depart the cities in which they worked um, to go back to their mostly rural homes. And I don't need to repeat, I think all of us are familiar with the national, but also the global headlines um, documenting the harrowing and sometimes fatal journeys that migrants had to undertake to go home, sometimes on foot, sometimes over hundreds of kilometers. What I'm going to focus on today is the kind of broader discussion of what prompted this crisis within a crisis. And let me begin by acknowledging that, of course, countries across the globe have struggled with the difficult choices that the pandemic presents in terms of policymaking and in terms of trade-offs between lives and livelihoods. Certainly, the country that I'm speaking to you from today, the United States, is no exception to these struggles. But that said, I think viewing the migrant crisis in India as purely a byproduct of the pandemic does not sufficiently recognize long-standing inadequacies in our understanding and treatment of these important communities. I'm going to highlight two such issues today. The first is an insufficient recognition of just the size and importance of migrant workers as part of our cities, as part of our urban populations. The second is an inadequate understanding of the inhospitable and precarious conditions in which most migrant workers are forced to live in their cities which helps explain their decision to undertake such risky journeys home. So I don't see these decisions as perplexing as some commentators, um, given how migrants live in our cities. And until these long-standing issues are addressed, the needs of migrant communities are unlikely to be anticipated or sufficiently dealt with in future policies, whether during exceptional moments of crisis or indeed during quote-unquote normal times. So just to begin with, who are India's migrant workers? When we use this term, we're referring to a specific subset of internal migrants within our country who do not permanently relocate from village to city, but rather circulate between their home village and destination city, sometimes several times a year. The vast majority of circular urban migrants, this category, are employed informally. That is that they lack formal wage, uh, wages and labor contracts. And there have been huge difficulties in just measuring the basic size of this population. This has been evident in the difficulties and the widely varying estimates of how many migrants have even sought to return home during this current crisis. So I have read estimates that vary from 7 to 30 million. I'm happy to talk about uh, you know, what, what the issues with those estimates are. But really, these estimates and the problems we've had really reflect difficulties that predate the pandemic. So as one important example, government data like the Indian National Census or the National Sample Surveys have routinely significantly underestimated our circular migrant population. And I'm happy to go into reasons why if there's interest in the Q&A. But as just one example, the NSS suggests about 1% of India's population, somewhere between 10 and 13 million people are circular migrants. For a long time, scholars have worried that these estimates are too low, and alternative estimates, including by the government's own 2016 economic survey, put the figures closer in the 55 to 100 million uh, people range, so much larger. And yet, even if we acknowledge that circular migrants are a large population, scholars face a number of problems in trying to systematically study them, uh, particularly using survey research. Recall, these are highly mobile and transient populations who in their cities that they work in lack fixed urban addresses. So this makes it very difficult for survey researchers to deploy conventional strategies that revolve around accessing respondents at home. 
Um, and so instead, in my own work on circular migrants, I've actually focused on accessing these migrants at work rather than in their scattered homes across the city. Um, and here I was helped by the relative consensus across a number of data sources that most circular migrants are male and employed in the construction industry, which most estimates say you know, is by far the single largest employer of these category of migrants. And so based on this, I focused on serving male construction workers. Um, and even here, we, you know, we can uh, come across certain problems. Um, and so to uh, help uh, you know, access this population, I focused on interviewing migrants at concentrated informal labor spot markets where they assemble to find work as daily wage laborers. So many of you may be familiar with these labor markets. They go by various names, labor chalks, charahas, nakas. Um, they look something like this. This is a labor chalk in Delhi where uh, migrants assemble across a, across a road and passing jeeps and trucks uh, with urban employers take them away. Um, to work on construction sites uh, for a daily wage. And so I focused on mapping labor chalks in two cities um, in the New Delhi National Capital Region, which is the largest annual recipient of migrant construction workers in India, and in Lucknow, which is one of India's 50 mid-sized cities. And across these two cities, we surveyed 3,000 migrant workers at 74 labor chalks, which were randomly sampled over an exhaustive listing of labor markets in both cities. And just to give you a visual sense of where these markets were, these were the markets we surveyed in New Delhi. These were the markets that we surveyed in Lucknow. And just very briefly to share with you some of the findings of that survey, I'm going to address three questions. Who migrates, at least how, who according to the survey? In what conditions do they live in the city? And why would they go back? And I should again clarify that this is based on this survey, and we can talk about how representative the survey might be, but I think the findings are instructive. In terms of who migrates, the first point, which shouldn't be surprising given the nature of work these migrants are undertaking, is the fairly uniform levels of economic disadvantage. But it bears repeating, about three quarters of them, uh, of the respondents, report no household electric connection in their home village. Uh, the vast majority have less than eight years of schooling. Almost none have ever held a salaried position, and the majority also have debt. At the same time, the sample that we interviewed was highly socially diverse. So about a quarter came from um, SC caste category jatis. Uh, about 40% uh, came from OBC, but 20% came from forward caste Hindu populations, and about 15% were Muslim. So circular migrants are a unique population in that they are economically homogenous, but socially diverse. And this has an array of implications that, again, I'm happy to talk about if there's interest in the Q&A. A second key feature from the survey will pertain to the duration for which migrants have undertaken these journeys. Circular migration really should not be thought of as a temporary stepping stone to permanently relocating in the city. Most circular migrants have been observing this itinerant form of migration for several years. So if we look at the survey data asking how long ago did migrants first begin coming to the city for work, you'll see that the most common response was more than a decade ago. Uh, and almost all respondents have been doing this for several years. Furthermore, the majority of surveyed migrants spend more than six months in the city. So all of this means that circular migrants should be very much thought of as a part and parcel of our urban landscape. In terms of their life in the city, let's, let's think about earnings, the reason why migrants come. So the average daily wage, the survey was in 2013-14, was just north of 300 rupees a day. And on average, migrants worked about 19 days a month. This allowed them to remit home about 2,300 rupees a month, the significance of which is made clear uh, when you see that it nearly doubles their average family earnings in the village. 
In terms of their living conditions in the city, when we look at housing, the majority of migrants share rented rooms with other migrants. Um, and the second most common category was that actually they slept on the footpath. So these two categories are, uh, account for the majority of migrant housing. Just note the very small percentage of respondents who had access to government subsidized shelters or rare baseras. Um, it's also significant that less than one in five migrants traveled with a family member, i.e. they came alone um, on this migration journey. And in doing so in their housing arrangements, often encountered members of other communities. So when asked who they shared living quarters with, over half have shared living quarters with a migrant from another village. A similar percentage have shared housing with migrants from another caste. And about three in 10 have shared housing with migrants from another religion. So these are unusual housing patterns in India, as I'm sure many of you will realize. Finally, in terms of documents, um, you can see a, a lack of documentary resources in the city for most migrants. Less than 3% had ration cards registered to city addresses, meaning they're unable to access PDS in the city. And only one in 10 had voted IDs registered to the city. So this contrasts with other urban poor populations. For example, slum residents who I've done a lot of work with um, in Jaipur and Bhopal, so different cities, but the comparison is still instructive. Almost all residents we've surveyed in across 100 and more slums in Jaipur and Bhopal had permanently shifted to the city. The vast majority had ration cards and voter IDs registered to city addresses. So they're a much more embedded urban population and powerful population than circular migrants. So all of this informs how we should think about this question of why did they leave? So I would reframe that question as why would they stay? And if you think of it this way, you can, you know, it's very obvious that there are many reasons that migrants may not want to stay in cities, including their economic precarity. Um, so the informal day long contracts means an immediate end to earnings the day they stop working. In fact, uh, uh, you know, a, a recent report by uh, Standard Workers Action Network surveyed of many migrants in their network and found the vast majority said they only had about two days or less of rations available to them following the lockdown order. Contrasting this with slums that uh, me and my co-author have surveyed during the lockdown, who on average reported 22 days of rations. At the same time, uh, circular migrants lack electoral clout, which is often important in helping and in induce politicians to help these populations uh, even during periods of crisis. And this lack of electoral clout, migrants themselves told me, look, urban politicians don't listen to us because they see us as poor laborers. If 100 or 200 of us say we will vote as one, then they will understand that we can make a difference between winning and losing. And there has been recent evidence that politicians are more responsive to requests from migrants registered to vote in the city. Um, and my, our own research finds that politicians during this lockdown period have been quite commonly visiting vote-rich slum settlements. So again, slums are more likely to capture attention and response from the state than migrants. And finally, migrants fear harsh treatment by the police. Uh, some of this mistreatment was, I think, evident from news reports during the lockdown, but should not be surprising. Recall one in four migrants sleep on the footpath in my survey sample, putting them squarely in line with some lockdown policing. And again, here, the pandemic is highlighting a pre-existing issue. In a separate survey I conducted of migrant street vendors in Lucknow, 33% said they experienced police violence in the past year alone. By comparison, only 5% said they had ever experienced police violence in their home village. And these actions are often demanded by wealthier city residents and reflect broad, broader social attitudes towards migrant workers by more privileged urbanites. Migrants complained to me that they see them as just labor and worse than the dogs who they were let ride in the cars with them. And I think all of this should be thought about when we think about what can be done going forward. 
And at least three things I think should be done, and I'm happy to go into these in the Q&A, but I'll just mention them here. First is investment in accurately measuring the size of these populations, which will help recognize their significance. The second is more inclusive policies towards migrants in their cities. I'm happy to go into what these might look like. And the final one is reducing intolerance in our own social attitudes towards the migrant workers who build our cities and surely deserve a place in them. So I'll end it there and thank you very much for your patience. Again, I'll invite you to uh, come to our website at cassie.sas.upen.edu and engage with us there. Thank you again. Uh, thank you, Tarek. So there are a couple of questions in the question box. Um, if it's okay with uh, you and the folks asking the questions, uh, I want to ensure we have time to talk about the arc of your research. So I'm going to go there Mm -hmm. and then come back to the questions which and there, there may be more questions about some of the other stuff you've done okay. so let me start if it's okay Tarek, with uh, a couple of questions related to your first book um you know in the title of the book so everyone knows is elite parties poor voters how social services win votes in india and i need to frame the question i have by laying out your basic starting point for the audience i can use the american analogy which you make reference to why does the Republican Party win elections, given it advocates economically conservative policies that should not appeal to a majority of voters? And if people want to read an extremely funny book on this subject, that's called What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, funny and tragic. And we can then make a more generic question, which is why would disadvantaged communities ever vote for parties that are run by and for more privileged citizens? So let's start with my question, which is, what got you interested in this question in the first place? And once interested, how did you go about creating a process to help answer that question that even though you weren't at Cassie, is keeping in keeping with the ground up data driven approach to social science that is in fact a hallmark now of Cassie? I hope you got yeah, all so, No, I did. And thank you for the question. So, you know, I think the, the, the broad question that animated my first book project was trying to think um, about uh, the voting choices of poor and disadvantaged voters, um, in particular Dalit and Adivasi voters, who've often been thought of as kind of mechanically voting um, as uh, either along caste lines or um, as elites in their area would have instructed them to do. And I think what uh, was particularly interesting to me was that for the longest period of time, we've understood and, and depicted the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, as a Brahmin Banya party. And that really referred to not just who was in the party, but who supported the party. And really what uh, struck my interest was following the 2004 elections, an election that the BJP actually lost. When looking at some survey data around the election results, I realized that it was inaccurate to simply think of the party as one that was being supported uh, by upper caste, that if you look across the country, there was considerable variation. Certainly in some states, the BJP only had support among upper caste voters, according to the survey data that we had. But that same survey data was suggesting that, uh, that you know, 30, sometimes 40% of Dalit and Adivasi voters were supporting the BJP in certain states. And that variation became what I was interested in studying. How is the party managing to cobble together a coalition of rich and poor in some states, but not others? And very briefly, and people can look at the book if they're interested, uh, the argument I made was that the party began its turnaround. And obviously, you know, there's been a, a much even bigger turnaround uh, since I wrote the book. 
But the party really began its turnaround by relying on its movement affiliates within the Hindu nationalist movement, within the RSS, to provide basic social services to lower caste and poor voters um, to help uh, outreach to them. Uh, while maintaining platforms that were favored by its upper caste and more privileged supporters. So that's the basic argument in a nutshell. And in terms of data, I think, you know, the data-driven approach that I uh, espouse and that I believe Cassie under my directorship will hopefully espouse is one that doesn't privilege just one form or one methodology over another. In across all my projects, any quantitative data collection strategy has to be preceded by deep qualitative and sometimes ethnographic research that it, so that you understand the communities that you seek to collect data on, uh, which almost inevitably means you're better to conceptualize and measure the outcomes that you seek uh, to understand. And I think that's uh, that's what I'd say on that. Right. And, you, and on that last point, you've written a paper on precisely that subject, which is the value of ethnography uh, in this work. So I think for this audience, it would be helpful um, to get an understanding briefly of what fieldwork in India in the social sciences entails. And I ask this question on behalf of members of the audience who, like myself, are not academics, are not mm -hmm. in the social sciences, and may not fully understand how, how detailed that the field has, the fields of social science have become. Can you talk about your research methodologies and how you went about getting and analyzing the data? or for the work you did in that book? Yeah, so I think the, the first step um, was, you know, field work in India requires collaboration and help. Um, and is it cannot just be thought of as a solitary venture. So my field work was greatly enabled by um, by other researchers and journalists who shared their time with me. The Center for the Study of Developing Society, CSDS, and Lokniti in India gave me a place in which um, I could stay. It was their survey data that I began analyzing just to help get a descriptive sense of what was going on having lots of conversations with people who've been studying these issues to get a finer sense of even what are the right questions to be asking. After that, this, you know, the second step in fieldwork is to actually go to the areas that you think are interesting. In my case, you know, Chhattisgarh was the first state and the state in which I did the deepest fieldwork. It was the state in which the Vanvasi Kalyan Ashram, which is one of these major outreach um, organizations for the Sangh Parivar um, with Adivasis in particular, was founded and had its most robust presence. Um, and I couldn't learn about that group just sitting in Delhi. And so going to Chhattisgarh, spending time with both that group, but also with uh, the communities in which they worked was, I think, essential for understanding what uh, were the right questions to ask. Was this even a phenomenon that was interesting to study? Um, and then thinking about larger scale data collection, whether it was survey research or collecting uh, kind of data on the level of activities and the scope of activities. And I just say in terms of kind of people who are non-experts thinking about fieldwork in India, I think there are several forms of privilege that you need to conduct fieldwork. In my own case, the fact that I'm Indian, but also a man allows me to do certain kinds of um, work. Uh, certainly foreign researchers in India have certain kinds of privileges. I've seen foreign researchers I've traveled with have doors open to them to interview MPs and MLAs that as an Indian, it took me longer to do. Um, I've also seen the reverse where people have taken me more seriously because um, I come from India than people coming from elsewhere. And again, definitely as a man and definitely as somebody who has a lot of class privilege. And I think, you know, my hope is that uh, we will expand. There is exciting work that is happening in India, um, in Indian universities and also among students with far fewer resources than I enjoyed as a student in graduate school in the US and now in uh, as an uh, as an academic here. And I hope that Cassie can play a role in uh, facilitating and promoting some of the exciting research that's happening in India by Indians. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Um, 
There are a number of questions in the box, so I want to just, I'm going to compress my own questions on the arc of your research here. Uh, so the next one from me, I want to discuss a pair of articles that you wrote with Adam Auer, clients and brokers in Indian slums. And I guess, you know, as I was reading those, one comment really struck me as surprising. And I think uh, this is not an exact quote, but uh, you, you make the points that the point that this is one of the first large and representative systematic surveys of brokers and slums. And mm -hmm. it's important to emphasize you're using broker in a in a specialized way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a specialized term for what you mean by a broker. But I just find that astonishing that mm -hmm. it's it's taken us so long. You know, why have the social sciences been late mm -hmm. to this these topics? And do you expect this research to accelerate work on the subject? Yeah, so that question, I think, ties into some of what I've been talking about during uh, this presentation. I think urban informality is incredibly difficult to study. So it's much easier to survey villages in India. We can get lists of villages. We can think of randomly sampling them to even construct a representative sample of urban slums in just two cities, Jaipur and Bhopal, required a tremendous mapping effort led by my co-author Adam Auerbach um, in where you literally had to look at um, spatial and satellite images and pass over them, combine them with municipal lists of slums, which don't include all slums, just to get a comprehensive list of slums in two cities. So we had over 400 slums that we enumerated in just these two cities. And that's the first step. And again, because these are informal settlements, they're incredibly difficult to, to map out and then to survey. Uh, and then the second part of our project was to actually survey the informal leaders within these settlements. So many people will know that, you know, Bastis have netas, people who are unofficial netas or pradhans. Um, and in our effort, we had to survey slum residents first to ask them, who are your leaders? And then only could we um, uh, interview the leaders themselves. So it was a multi-step process that took whatever hair was left on my head. Um, and I think, though, but it gives you a sense of the number of steps that it took. It took many, many years, almost five years of research before we were in a position to even interview these, uh, 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 what we consider at least a plausibly representative sample of slum leaders in two cities. And I would say the key finding that emerged from there, from that study was again, how many misconceptions we labor under when we don't study things. So I think the dominant picture most yeah. people will have of a slum leader in India is of a kingpin, you know, as portrayed in Slumdog Millionaire, um, or sacred games. And we found that that, you know, not to deny that there is not coercion or criminality in slums, but that is not the representative picture, that most slum leaders are entrepreneurs who really enjoy support based on the work that they do for their residents and for getting stuff done, for helping residents register voter ID cards or ration cards um, or help get, you know, access to water and streetlights. And so that's just a, a tip of the iceberg, but it shows you the importance of your question that how do we invest in studying urban informality at scale um, across a multiplicity of cities so that we enhance our understanding of these important and proliferating spaces? So I'm going to ask one more question that I'm going to dip into the question box. And I, this is a question on another vector of your research, which which comes from obviously much of the work, and, and you alluded to this earlier in this conversation, that is police violence in the poor migrant community, which you had a slide on. Yeah. Obviously, this is topical given the BLM phenomenon in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, and you've, you've written a, a paper specifically on this topic, which is mm -hmm. titled, Does Police Repression Spur Everyday Cooperation? Um, I guess I would like you to, you know, I want to be very careful not to project moral values and what is data-driven social science research, but 
I'd like you to comment on why it is that in the U.S., police violence, not just now, but over the last few decades, appears to result in broad-based movements and change, mm-hmm. such as the Black Lives Matter movement. But we don't quite see that effect in the global south, do we? Or, or mm-hmm. is it just that we are not educated enough and folks like no, you? No, I think... Do? I think that it's a it's a very good question. And I think that, um, you know, for the most part, you know, what interested me was exactly understanding the dynamics of everyday policing. So I think we do sometimes see protesting uh, in response to exceptional acts of policing of protesters, for example. And we've seen that in India even recently. But what we haven't seen is large scale um, collective action in the face of everyday policing and everyday police repression. And one of the reasons for that might be, and what spurred my own research interest was, again, this was not something that I came up with in a moment of genius law on high. It was just talking to lots of migrants. And something that I was struck with by by working with migrants in Delhi and Lucknow was they said repeatedly, I asked them, what is the biggest change of coming from your village to the city uh, in your dealings with the state? And they said that the face of the state in the city for us is the police. And that actually resonates with studies in the U.S. among black communities in the U.S. that say the police is the only government we know, um, as scholars Veshla Weaver and Joe Sauce have noted. And I think that what was interesting for me is if this is the state, the face of the state for most migrants is the police, um, then how does that impact their everyday lives? Um, And uh, one of the things that I found was that everyday police violence actually um, helps unite migrants and actually creates a shared experience along which they often bond even sometimes across caste um, and religious lines. And I think that's, you know, for me was quite interesting. Uh, but, you know, I want to be careful here in terms of, you know, it, this is not just my research. A recent survey of over 12,000 police officers by Common Cause and Lokniti speaks to part of the problem. So when asked uh, which communities were naturally prone to committing crimes, the percentage of police officers answering very much um, said only 6% said upper caste Hindus were naturally prone to committing crimes, but 14% said Muslims were, 13% said slum residents were, 24% said migrants were. So again, migrants in particular are really regarded as this, and this is you know a long-standing uh, you know colonial era um, a hangover that has persisted in our cities as is much of our policing infrastructure. So my right. hope is that, you know, the, the resonance of conversations that we're having around policing in this country will find the appropriate, contextually appropriate um, analogs in India. And if my research has a part to play in that, at least in shedding light on what is happening in, in, in some cities, um, then that would be great. Got it. Um, thank you for that. I'm going to dip into uh, the question here. Uh, there are a number of questions. I won't touch mm-hmm. on all of them, so my apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, one question, uh, this is from Urbi Bhamek. What does the fact that these migrants have been compelled to return under adverse conditions have on the circular nature of their migration? And, you know, this is is an important question. You know, are they likely to go back? Or will they stay on? And then what would be the implications on the question of migration is the remainder of the question. I think for economic planners in India, Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also going to be an important element. So mm-hmm. your thoughts are welcome. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think it's a very important question. I should note from the beginning that I think there's not clarity on even what percentage of migrants have been able to go back. So just to give you a tiered answer. So, you know, it's not it's not a given that all of the migrants have gone back. Many migrants, again, 
we have very spotty data on this, but the available reports suggest that a non-trivial proportion of them, maybe more than half, have not actually been able to go back. Um, but we do know that many millions have returned. And we do know that, uh, in fact, the data sourced from the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act till July 1st shows that in June, around 43.7 million households sought work under the scheme. That was the highest in the last seven years. So this speaks to this return flow, right? We know that that's happened. The question is, how much will they return? My expectation is that if allowed and if permissible, many will return. Uh, because of the precarity that I talked about, I mean, if you think of the remittances number, the percentage, I mean, they're doubling their income through the remittances that they are um, earning in the city. And that's not going to go away, right? The, the, the reality of shrinking landowning sizes for most poor agrarian families in India uh, are going to compel such migration journeys to continue whenever possible. And so I think that, you know, it's really, uh, uh, you know, my expectation would be that if allowed and if uh, cities are open for them that the, the migrants are going to return in large percentages. Uh, but of course, that I don't think should absolve us from thinking about how to accommodate them perhaps better than we have before and certainly during the pandemic in the city. Got it. Uh, I'm going to continue uh, just mm -hmm. picking from the question box, uh, Tarek, if that's okay. So, mm -hmm. sure. uh, Sujata Rajpurohit uh, asked the following. You mentioned Jaipur and Bhopal as cities where migrants lived better or fared better. What policies do you think these cities might have implemented to result in these better outcomes or better access to benefits? Mm -hmm. Which other cities have done similarly well and have any done especially poorly? It's a that's a great question. Let me uh, let me clarify. So when I was referring to in in the Q and A in particular, um, Jaipur and Bhopal, I'm talking about slum residents. And I'm comparing, you know, the, the talk on Delhi and Lucknow was really about circular migrants. These are two different populations. So I think it's a useful question to also clarify when we're talking about our urban poor population, this is not a homogenous category. So slum residents, for the most part, have permanently relocated, found a niche within cities, registered to vote in cities, have access yep. to PDS in cities and are often very rich and powerful vote banks. This doesn't mean that they're, they're not face a difficult conditions, but uh, as many author scholars have found, you know, slums exert considerable political clout. That is how they are able to get what minimal level of service provision they do. Circular migrants, I think, are an even more precarious stream of migrants and urban poor in India. They are not able to relocate. So actually, circular migrants in Jaipur and Bhopal do not fare especially well, comparably to what they fare in Delhi and Lucknow. Um, and I think the question about what we could do better um, I think one obvious place is to really deploy resources that are already sitting there for uh, use for migrant dominated populations. So to give you just one example, um, if we think of uh, construction and welfare boards, so we have these welfare boards in, uh, in across our states in India, um, and they all are funded by 1% cesses on construction projects. And so they actually have crores and crores of rupees. But, okay. uh, you know, following the pandemic, the government actually directed them to disburse some of these funds to migrant, to construction workers registered on their roles. But they've been limited in their ability to do so. They've only about 10% of funds have actually been dispersed this way in a city like Delhi, um, which has the largest number of construction workers. Um, and we can talk about reasons why, but there are, in fact, funds is not just about expanding the number of funds that we collect. It, let's start by utilizing the funds we already have that are supposed to be earmarked for these populations and actually give them when crisis hits, which currently we've not done a good job of doing. 
Got it. And, you know, everything you say spawns so many more interesting questions that I would love to get your ideas on, but I want to be fair to our audience. Priyanka Agarwal asks one question that I think is just very pertinent, which is the infrastructure in most Indian cities are inadequate for residents. So how do you think about amenities such as access to water, shelter with proper sanitation, Mm-hmm. and other essential facilities how do we how do we think these can be made available to the migrants and i know we're asking you to solve intractable problems but that's how you get to be director of cassie no i i think that it's a it's an excellent question and i think again what i would say is that there are existing at least low hanging fruit that could be um taken advantage of uh and so let's start with a couple of key measures that i think um would be would be a good start again um expanding on using existing pools of money including from the construction and welfare boards that i referred to earlier um expanding shelters for example so as i said 5% of um migrants are able to access housing and shelters shelters are themselves quite efficient modes of housing they can house a lot of people in a fairly small space we're not talking about luxury accommodations for everyone but basic dignified housing and for example in the current moment uh the atmanirbhar uh, self reliance package the government has rolled out is providing home uh, providing meals for people in shelters but the problem is such a few number of people are actually being captured by shelters so if you did the one it would actually expand the ability to uh, have access to the other right so if you want to be able to feed migrants it's going to be easier if you actually have them in government housing um and so it would you would not spend so much time and resources trying to track migrants in a panic and frenzy which we've done exposed now think about after the pandemic we have expended a considerable number of resources but we've done it in a kind of reactive way where the dollar or the rupee in this case is just going to go less far and you know if we're sitting these construction welfare boards are sitting on this money i would much rather see it being used um in order to uh, in order to kind of anticipate some of these problems so that it's a more cost effective kind of solution um and the other thing that you know a lot of people have suggested is kind of making benefits more portable um in that way making migrants able to access their pds benefits um in cities so right now the way that our pds system is structured a migrant can only access it in their home village or right. in the city but because these often are migrants who are migrating without their family they prefer to allow the ration card or pds access to remain in the village for their family leaving them out right. in the cold there are concerns with portability as well because how would you do this you know portability if it just means allowing the migrant to now register in the city that is not solving the problem of this split household so this particular population requires almost a reimagining of how our pds system allows for a family to share the pds resources i'm not even talking about expanding pds at this point i'm in terms of the amount of grain or of goods we're giving i'm just saying allowing a more flexible supply chains more flexible uh, regimes to allow access at multiple points and again there are many kind of uh, problems that come up with that that we'd have to think through carefully and people have made uh, comments about uh, but you know thinking on those lines i think everything i've suggested so far is not really expanding resources but even right. deploying existing resources better for these populations so i probably only have time for one or two audience questions because there you know i want to take our arc back to cassie and so on mm-hmm. but let me let me pick a couple and my apologies to everyone i have not gotten to uh this one is from Rohan Tebrawala which is and you know it's a question of mine as well because you know a lot of the work and you know some of the comments you've made today uh just throws up many analogies with China mm-hmm. and so Rohan's question is 
uh, is, there, is there a country, region, or community that has managed migrant labor and their welfare to adequate standards? Um, and if so, can we learn something? If so, how? And can we learn something useful? And I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Um, yeah, so I mean, again, I'm not an expert on other countries, and so I, you know, I, I would hesitate to answer that question. But let's let's focus on. But I, but what I can say is this: let's focus on this population of internal migrants. That's who we're talking about. So we're not talking about transnational immigrants. That throws up a whole other yeah. level of of issues. But if we uh, look at uh, internal migrants, and just for record, internal migrants according to global estimates, outnumber international migrants by a three to one ratio. So when we talk about migration uh, in, the, in the world, and particularly in the global south, what we're talking about is really internal migrants. International migrants often dominate headlines. They are not the modal migrant in India um, or in much of the world. And so when we think about which population um, has dealt with, and again, we're talking about migrant workers. So again, most migrants in India, when we measured it according to the census, the vast majority are women migrating after marriage. So what we call quote unquote marriage migrants. Um, so right. what we are talking about is really the subset of economic migrants, which, you know, who's doing well with it. And I would say that overall, this is, and this I've written a little bit about this, circular urban migrants are not well cared for in most of the global South. So we have problems that arise in countries ranging from Peru to uh, Vietnam, um, to sub-Saharan Africa, where a number of countries depend on this kind of labor. And so I don't think that, you know, the point is not that India is unique in its bad handling of migrants. Of course, by virtue of our size, we have such a massive size of this population. Um, and the combination with the stringent lockdown produced this migrant problem. But there have been similar problems, perhaps to a less severe degree, in countries, again, ranging from Peru um, to Zambia during this pandemic period. And so um, I think that, uh, you know, it's a it's a moment for global learning. And rather than say that, you know, um, India has to kind of model itself on other countries, given that we, I think we need to do more to learn the specificities of our circular migrant population yeah. and then be yeah. in collaboration with other countries that are facing very similar problems. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there's been a kind of model country that's done this. Some countries have been better about kind of portable benefits. Some countries have been better about dispersing uh, some kinds of material benefits during the pandemic. Um, but I would say overall, uh, you know, most countries in India's kind of income class find similar problems in dealing with their circular urban migrants. So one last question from our audience, and this is from Sachi Bhalla. And her question is, could you speak to the status and work of women migrants also, and I'll combine it with a question from Gertrude uh, Lamar, which is, are there certain state benefits that women migrant workers can access that um, somehow distinct, di differentiate them from, I guess, male mm -hmm. migrant workers? So, so I don't know yeah, if you no, let me let me begin by by pointing out a shortcoming in my own work. So because I was focusing on labor spot markets, uh, these are dominated by men, not everywhere. So um, Swati Shah has done some interesting work about women workers who are um, in uh, Nakas in Mumbai. But what I would say is that, um, you know, there are a number of women who work on construction sites. Their journey to the construction site tends to happen differently. They go directly in these groups that are uh, uh, hired by labor contractors from the village and work, go directly to the site. Um, and so that is a slightly different chain of migration that's very difficult to access because, you know, serving people on construction sites requires the permission of builders and developers. And I think shocking to no one that it was hard for me to find those permissions. Um, so right. there is an entire category of women construction workers who is being missed by my survey. 
and may also be being underestimated in these unofficial in, in the in the data sources that suggest that the overwhelming majority of migrants are men. We certainly know of in certain professions migrants who are women um, uh, in certain employment professions, whether it's um, um, homework, uh, working within the uh, domestic sphere, etc. Um, I wouldn't say that as circular urban migrants, women are eligible for particular benefits in that status. So obviously women um, are eligible for particular benefits in general relative to men. But thinking about the specificities of female migrant journeys, what kinds of benefits could be given to them, whether in terms of making safe uh, options for transport, whether thinking about resources on construction sites, so mandating builders and developers have resources on construction sites that women might need. Um, I think on that, we there's there's a lot that could be done, frankly. Um, and so again, more area for exploration. Got it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna now bring, take us away from research and questions mm -hmm. and back back to the the original arc of our interaction here. I want to touch briefly on UPRC and ask you a question related mm -hmm. to UPRC. Um, you know, for our audience's benefit, Cassie has a sister entity in New Delhi, the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Advanced Study of India, UPRC, headed by Dr. Sri Sri Dharan for the last 20 years. UPRC is pen affiliated, but is an independent research institution. And the Cassie director, which is Tariq, uh, serves ex officio as a member of the UPRC board, which I chair. Now, in an article that you co-authored with Milan Vaishna called The Strategic and Moral Imperatives of Local Engagement, you write on an absolutely fraught topic, right? If I can frame it in a way that a non-academic like me can grasp, it is the issue of US-based academics writing about India and the Orient in general for an audience that appears to largely consist of other US-based academics. Mm -hmm. And you know, the arguments you make in that paper, I, I found absolutely compelling. It was, it was moving in many ways to read it. And so I think it'd be useful for you to comment on those arguments and link it perhaps to UPRC and yeah. catalyzing local research for local audiences in India while still benefiting from the strengths of PEN um, yes. and all that Cassie does. Yeah, so I think in, in writing that piece, the point that I think Milan and I wanted to draw attention to was that um, you know, I think in many ways, India is a country that is ripe for certain kinds of extractive models of scholarship in the US. It's a country that has uh, just enough set up um, for enabling easy data collection, especially for people who, have, who are mostly English speaking. Uh, but it also does not have robust systems of checks, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, systems of institutional reviews um, or uh, kind of uh, pushback against uh, research that is overly extractive. So it provides a way for US researchers to enter quite easily, often using local populations as fixers uh, to conduct their research, gather their data, leave and publish it for journals that are mostly read by other US academics. And again, to some degree, the job of an academic is to write for academic audiences. I think the point of our critique is, and our point there was, that what are the kinds of questions that we're asking? And are they of any value or importance to the communities that we are studying. And here, I wouldn't even say India is the community. I'd say even more specifically, in my case, are circular migrant communities at all served by the research that I'm doing? Or is it a way right. for me to come in, access them, and, and get my publications and become director of Cassie? And so right. I think the key step that we talk about is making sure that US-based researchers expand their local engagement um, so, a, you know, a trend that we draw caution to is that uh, a lot of people in my own field of political science are spending less and less time actually in the countries they study. They're outsourcing that labor and spending more and more time, you know, teching up and taking classes to kind of have 
extreme technical expertise in statistical methodology, uh, but perhaps right. at the expense of engagement with local communities. And there is a real trade-off there because it may mean not only are you not asking questions that are important to the local community, but you may be asking the wrong question. So just to give you an example, on my migrant survey, when I first went, I was translating, I wanted to ask them about their perceptions of risk. And I was using a kind of technical Hindi word, highbrow word, jokhim. Nobody was understanding that term. And so it was right. only in going and talking and testing that myself that I was noticing that nobody's really, I mean, people were answering the question and I was just getting wrong answers. And so I realized that the term that people were using was actually RICS, an English term, but inverting the K and the S. The moment I put RICS instead of Jokim on the survey, my responses were just a much higher quality. So it's not wow. just for the, uh, for reasons of kind of, kind of moral, um, engagement with the communities you study, but actually for better social science. And so I think, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but the point we're making there is that it's really important to have that local engagement. And I think UPRC really serves as that uh, channel for CASI uh, because yeah. of its uh, the fact that it's on the ground um, and that it exists not only in India, but it is bringing together India-based researchers. Um, Dr. Sridharan does an amazing job of convening researchers from India on a topic. It keeps CASI constantly infused with the blood of ideas coming from India um, and by Indians. And I think that's really important and also provides ways for collaborating and disseminating ideas. That I think is the hallmark that, you know, scholars in the, in, in the, who are based in the US use the resources and training available to us here, but also uh, in, in sharing and imparting those um, also bring in the ideas um, and, and feedback of our colleagues in India. And I, just speaking as a volunteer who is on both sides, um, you know, involved with both Cassie and UPRC, let me just say that I'm super excited about what lies ahead uh, with you yeah, now in you. command at Cassie. So let's now come back to Cassie. Um, now that we've spoken at length about research and the Indian condition. <laughs> so the reality of academic centers on a university campus is that their agenda scale research footprint is highly dependent on the center director's vision. And you may not have thought of it this way, and I hope this doesn't make your heart sink, uh, but center directors tend to be in position for a long time. Uh, you know, your predecessor um, was director, I think, for 14 or 15 years, um, and that was probably at least 10 years longer than he thought he'd be in that position. And so what is your vision for Cassie, both short and medium term? And feel free to answer in whatever detail you wish. Well, I think, you know, thank you for that question. I guess all of us have to think of things in increments. So I am also laboring under the um, illusion that I will be doing this for a shorter period of time just to make it more tractable. Right now I'm week to week, not even year to year. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the, the vision for Cassie, so, you know, concretely, I think we're going to be focusing very much on the research areas that I um, have some expertise and can at least immediately hit the ground running. So some of the research topics we're going to look at in the near future um, include questions of small scale urbanization. So uh, much of the urbanization happening across India is not happening in, in big cities like Delhi or even medium sized cities in Lucknow, but very small areas. And what are the key challenges that these uh, for governance that these small cities face um, in some preliminary work? We found that many of these cities are not even able to spend uh, the money they get from the center and the state, even though they need so many things, they're not even able to spend those things. And so the money that they are given. And so trying to understand those bottlenecks, trying to map out patterns of urban inequalities, you know, how can we measure patterns of urban inequality of caste and class, urban segregation, um, and assess the impact of that in cities as producers of mobility, both social and economic. 
um, and how are informal slum settlements incorporated into cities and urban politics? That's the subject of a book that I'm currently completing um, with Adam Auerbach. And so those are some of the research questions. I think we're trying to have a cohesive research agenda because I think to have an overly sprawling agenda at the beginning is uh, is kind of a difficult enterprise, particularly during times of COVID, where basic data collection and field work is very, very constrained. Um, but going forward, I hope that we will kind of expand beyond uh, this core focus on urbanization and migration to areas of critical importance, whether it is water shortage, whether it is thinking about the health of democratic political institutions in India. Um, and so I think, you know, keeping Cassie as um, a space that is really focused on contemporary India, that's the unique space that it offers within the US, but convening interdisciplinary conversations. So one of the things I really value is that while I'm a political scientist at Cassie, you know, I really am not thinking in terms of my discipline. I'm thinking about on a particular theme, say a water crisis. It would be nice to bring an environmental historian to bring uh, to, to in conversation with maybe an engineer in conversation with somebody who studies who is a sociologist. And what are the kinds of you know insights that come out of that cross fertilization of ideas? And as director, one of my jobs is to be able to try and think about how to convene those conversations. And I think that um, is something I'm especially excited to do. And I think the second that, uh, feature that I'll just draw brief attention to that I mentioned in my talk um, is to kind of continue Cassie's legacy of um, policy-oriented um, research, but also to expand its engagement with undergraduates. So I think one thing that I've been very heartened by as a professor in the US is seeing the uh, incredible interest and enthusiasm that undergraduates have for political events, whether it's happening in their backyards, as we can see in the US today, or more globally. And I think we as educators have to do a good job of capitalizing on that energy. And I think Cassie is going to really look to expand on its events that engage students, not just on what's happening um, in the diaspora, um, which I think is, is a lot of interest in, not just in terms of the normal patterns of cultural engagement, but what is happening in India? What are the kind of political debates and events happening in India so that they have a live and updated sense of the country from which, um, uh, from which their parents may have come or which some of them may have come directly, or indeed non-Indian or non-heritage students on campus, many of whom are increasingly interested in India. So I would say, you know, on the research track, we're looking to do a kind of cohesive focus on urbanization. There are many topics to be explored there for the near future. And then on the programming front, really looking to exchange, uh, to kind of expand on our offerings to undergraduates, in addition to the normal state of research seminars that we run uh, for, uh, for you know, PhD students and for faculty. And I'm really excited that a lot of that, you know, one silver lining of COVID is that we're all thinking about how to make this accessible digitally. And already we're seeing an uptick in the number of attendees to our events from India. And that makes me very happy alluding to our earlier conversation that, you know, people can more directly in India participate in what uh, what is happening every day at Cassie. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just make a side comment because I've been involved as a volunteer um, with the CASI summer internship program since it started. And that really is a, is a jewel in the entire spectrum of international internships that Penn offers. So that is a real success story at CASI and it's delightful yeah, to hear you, hear you talk about how it'll, it'll uh, expand. So I'm gonna to touch on two or three things more before we wrap up. One, you know, we've spent this entire conversation obviously talking about research. And mm -hmm. policy, um, and the balance between research and teaching at a great research university such as Penn is a very difficult one. You know, yes. can you talk about your view of that balance? And I just have to ask it: Will you be teaching undergraduates in the fall or the spring? 
Yes. Uh, so the second question is easy. I, I will be teaching. I'll be teaching a class in the spring. Um, it's going to be on a class I've taught for many years on development in South Asia. Um, and that will touch on various aspects of um, development and democracy in South Asia. So that will be in the spring, uh, you know, hopefully in person, but increasingly looking like it may be online as well. Uh, and so that's going to be in the spring um, in terms of my own teaching. In terms of the larger question, I think it's a really important one. You know, one thing that I was not prepared for really when I entered academia was the understanding that really careers are made as, uh, on the basis of your research even though we call ourselves professors and teachers. I you know, have gained a lot from teaching and gained a lot from uh, being a professor. My students over the years have given me an incredible amount of, um, of knowledge um, and humility. Uh, but I think that one of the difficulties is that um, you know, there is um, uh, a kind of privileging of research at the expense of teaching. My hope is that uh, by teaching the topics that we love, that, that trade-off needs not always be apparent. But of course, teaching does occupy a certain amount of time and you know the time that you need for research, and particularly researchers like me, whose research depends on significant amount of time in India, that often there is a kind of zero-sum trade-off there. And I'm incredibly aware that I have a lot of privileges in terms of the amount of time I've had been I've been given to go to India. Uh, many faculty in US universities do not have research leave, do not have uh, uh, have, have much more teaching burden than I do. And so I think those of us who are in these privileged positions should really have additional responsibility to make good use of that time. Uh, but also I think it's important that you know, places like Penn really do uh, insist upon a certain minimum level of undergraduate teaching. Uh, not all universities yep. do, and I, and I think that's really great because I think that really keeps you grounded in the campus community. Um, and you know, even as director of CASI, even in my first year, I am teaching an undergraduate course, and I think it's important to do so uh, because we're not just here to produce research uh, and policy papers, et cetera. We are here uh, fundamentally as members of a campus community, and to learn about those communities, you have to teach. So last question, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things before I wrap us up. The last question is on a personal note. Are you in Philadelphia? Are you settling in? Um, yes. You know, give us give us a little bit of what pandemic life is like. Uh, yes. So I, you know, if there's one policy recommendation I have coming out of this talk, it's please do not attempt to move during a global pandemic. Um, and <laughs> so uh, uh, that said, I did. We did. We did move here. Uh, my partner and I moved here um, about a month ago, and we are very lucky to be able to do so. Um, and so we're now in Philadelphia. Although what that means is increasingly unclear, since I'm interacting with the world on a on, on video boxes such as this one. Uh, but it is good to be in Philadelphia and to be you know, getting to know the city that is going to be our home and especially to come at a time where the city itself is, uh, you know, we came in the middle of the, um, uh, of the kind of apex of the protests um, and that was an exciting time to be in the city and to kind of think of um, all the different political engagements and discussions that were happening. So as a political scientist, I was um, kind of delighted to have that be kind of my initial time in the city. Um, and so, yeah, we're delighted to be here and, and looking forward to being here for many years to come. Great. 